Hello and welcome to the wildly popular, much-beloved Derek Hunter Podcast. For this Wednesday, December 27th, 2023, my name is Dean Carianis, and I'm returning to you after yesterday's tour de force, I guess they call it, on Boxing Day, in which I beseeched all of you to demand more of your radio hosts, of your television hosts, of anybody trying to get you to read their paper, buy their books, subscribe and download their podcasts. You, all of you out there deserve better. Expect them to put something in that box for you. Don't let it be a one-way relationship where they just make you buy their stuff. I am a former Rush Limbaugh staffer. I am the host of the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, and I am a contributing columnist at the New York Sun. You can find me there at nysun.com or at historyauthor.com and at historydean on Twitter. Please do remember to support Derek's show if you're so inclined at derekhunter.locals.com and at patreon.com slash Podcast. Derek will be back in the new year, and he has exciting news, as they call it in the radio business. Usually that doesn't mean anything between you and me. It's just something people say. But I, for one, am glad to hear Derek is going to be back over the airwaves. His voice in radio waves will be making its way out to places like Omicron Persei 8, and they will be able to listen out there to Derek and get a unique perspective on the news that they're not getting anywhere else. Uh, Certainly a unique voice does Derek offer. I am honored to be here today, but I'm also honored that all of you are listening. I very much appreciate it. Let me get into a little bit of news today after covering It's a Wonderful Life, Charlie Brown Christmas, and giving you some inside information on how these sausages made in the media business, which is what I tried to do yesterday. I want to talk about something that's become very common lately, and it's troubling to me, and I hope that it's troubling to all of you, even though we've become very immune to it on the Republican or the conservative or the right-of-center side of things, wherever you consider yourself falling. This should be something that troubles everyone, and that is this constant use of the name Hitler, calling everybody a Hitler, calling everybody a Nazi from a stern guy selling soup. And that was great soup, by the way. It still is. That soup place is still there. This throwing around of Hitler, and it might not sound particularly unique that I'm bringing this up. You've heard this before. You've heard of things like Godwin's Law, that anybody who invokes Hitler or the Nazis loses an argument online. You know that it's not a good thing to do. You roll your eyes. You become a little bit numb to it, is my guess. I often say to people, go look online. No politician has really made it until somebody's photoshopped their head onto Hitler. If you don't like what they're saying about your favorite politician, go look at what they're saying about your least favorite politician and vice versa. It bugs me, but the reason it's more serious this year is that it's coming from the White House now. It's coming from President Biden. And I think that that's very dangerous for democracy, for a republic, and especially for somebody who sees himself, casts himself as the lone defender of our democratic rights. This sets up a real problem for him, and it's something I've written about for the New York Sun. This column hasn't run yet, so you're getting a sneak peek. But President Biden is joining people comparing President Trump to Adolf Hitler. And whether people agree with that or not, it raises a sticky question, not for Mr. Trump, but for Biden. Because if Trump is truly the second coming of the Nazi tyrant, If this is really what Biden believes sincerely, how can he possibly accede to a peaceful transition of power? 
How can he accept a Trump win if he really thinks that this guy is going to be Hitler Jr.? Politico reported on Tuesday of last week that Mr. Biden's campaign has made comparing Mr. Trump to Hitler routine. And think about that. Think about where this is coming from. And they counted four times that the campaign of Mr. Biden had done so just in the preceding six weeks. That label has long been used as a brickbat to club foes, but when an incumbent president swings that brickbat, the stakes rise to a dangerous level. And I think that somebody, hopefully in the press pool, will ask about this. This should not be acceptable. It's bad politics for Biden, but more importantly, it's bad for the country, and it's dangerous. It sets up a real dangerous scenario here if President Trump ends up emerging. On Wednesday of last week, the Biden-Harris headquarters tweeted out on X. Do we call it X now or Twitter? Have we officially gone from the point where people would make that remark about what do we call it now to now it's just X? It's fascinating to me because for a while it was just Twitter. Then people started saying, I refuse to call it X every single time they had to talk about Twitter. And eventually, I guess we get to a point where we all either surrender and call it X or we just call it Twitter. I'm not sure, but it is interesting. The Biden-Harris HQ account on there tweeted out a graphic of Mr. Trump and Hitler with these quotes cobbled together from either single words or short phrases out of context. And the first noted that both men used the term vermin. And I know Derek spoke at length about that, and he thought that was an ill-advised thing of Mr. Trump to use. Certainly it was really a charged word. But Hitler described Jewish people as a vermin. And Trump used the words to describe, quote, communists, Marxists, fascists, and fascists were who? They were Nazis, right? Mussolini invented the fascist party after he was leader of the Socialist Party and decided that they were not left enough for him. And Mr. Trump said radical left thugs. So he was not talking about people based on their religion here, but he used that word. That word is certainly a charged word. Eh, if I was writing a speech, I would certainly not use vermin because why get distracted? Why get down in the weeds? But Trump, of course, he's a disruptor. He likes to shake things up. He is not born for calm seas, as Andrew Jackson said about himself. Andrew Jackson said, I, I'm at home in the storm. The calm seas do not suit me. And that's something that I think... Republicans are going to have to accept if they're going to have Donald Trump as their nominee. He's never going to be the guy who just enjoys being in the background as much as it would help him in many situations. The image that Biden-Harris tweeted out next showed an image of Mr. Trump and his statement that people in America illegally, as in criminals, as in people who are violating the law to get here, violating federal law, I know I heard somewhere, nobody's above the law, can I get an amen? Somebody has been lecturing me on that. Mostly it's Nancy Pelosi telling me nobody should have the law. But apparently, another thing I've written about in the sun, my wife might say griped about in the sun. But <laughs> no, I always try to keep it positive, is that it seems like there's a whole lot of people out there who are put above the law. You could cite Hunter Biden maybe if you're of that mind. Certainly people in the ruling class all over Washington put themselves above the law. So that's who President Trump was talking about. He was talking about people here illegally in violation of the law. We don't know who they are. We don't know what their crimes are. He said they are poisoning the blood of the country. Now, some people tried to spin that as, well, he was talking about fentanyl. Eh, all right, maybe he was. But we know that the guy shoots from the lip. We know what he was saying there. We know what he's talking about, American society and culture. He used blood. Well, they said he was talking about all immigrants. 
you know, including the ones that come here completely legally, as my wife did. He apparently was talking about this entire group, because that sounds really good, because we've removed all distinction. They seized on that, and they said he's talking about all immigrants, because we've allowed the term immigrants to become homogenized to anybody now who casts their eyes to America. Even when we have those caravans, they say there's millions of immigrants. Well, they're not immigrants until they go through a process, right? At some point, if you come from Greece or my wife coming from Canada, you're a Canadian, right? You're a Canadian national. You're not an immigrant just because my wife said, for reasons only known to a benevolent God, she wanted to move here to marry me. Just by declaring she wanted to move here, she didn't instantly become an immigrant. But this is what we've allowed to happen to the language. My wife was an alien for a long time. She was a legal resident alien, but she was certainly an alien. And that's why we had this other term to make a distinction, illegal alien. But we allowed that to be erased. Now everyone's an immigrant. And that sets up this trap where they say, well, immigrants, he was talking about it just like Hitler. Once you convince yourself someone's Hitler, I guess everything you hear them say turns into Hitler. And I'm a historian. I'm somebody who reads and reads on World War II. And I'm saying, when I am saying your Hitler parallel is really stretched, <laughs> that means you're really stretching it. Because I tend to see parallels to various things in the past in everything that happens. Certainly, World War II offers many of them. The one they paired Mr. Trump with was a phrase by Hitler talking about contamination of the blood by an inferior race. And that's close enough to make invoking blood at all ill-advised, but the campaign does not need to make this. To me, it shows that the Biden-Harris campaign is really flailing. They're seeing these polls with Trump leading, and they're hectoring the media. You may have seen that a couple months ago. They think the media is being too light on Trump. Jeez, talk about being in a bubble. You could think that they're too light on Donald Trump, but something that they could have left to others. They don't need to be out there doing this, especially when it was so ham-handed. There are things on, on Instagram, people that hate Trump, that are a little bit more based than this. And to me, working for Rush all those years, we would never make those comparisons. In fact, Rush would shut people down if they tried to say it about Bill Clinton when he was the big bad, I guess you'd say at the moment. It comes with the job being president. People are going to criticize you. I don't need to hear anybody diminishing the singular evil that was Adolf Hitler by comparing any American to it. The final quote of Mr. Trump puts phrases of two and three words into an invented sentence, and by the way, cleverly, it isn't paired with any Hitler corollary. These are the two phrases that Mr. Trump is quoted as using here, within our country and far worse. That's it. From that, they cobbled together the sentence, my political opponents within our country are far worse than the dictators of Russia, North Korea. Okay, I could play Mad Libs with that too. You remember Mad Libs? I'm not talking about the ones that watch MSNBC. I'm talking about the game as a child. They would have printouts and spaces, and you would name nouns and verbs and just make your own sentence. That is not only completely inventing a sentence out of a couple of phrases. It's a statement that is exactly what Mr. Biden's team is saying about the Republican opponent. If you saw Claire McCaskill, she said he's worse than Hitler and Mussolini. A lot of people have tried to draw similarities between Mussolini and Hitler and the use of the terminology like vermin and the, the, the drive that those men had towards autocracy and, and dictatorship. The difference, though, I think makes Donald Trump even more dangerous, and that is he has no philosophy he believes in. He is not trying to expand the boundaries of the United States. 
United States of America. He's not trying to overcome a neighboring country like Putin is in Ukraine. He is not going for some grandiose scheme of international dominance. All he wants is to look in the mirror and see a guy who's president. All he cares about is selfish self-promotion. That's the only philosophy he has, which makes him even more dangerous because he has actually said out loud that it would be okay to terminate the Constitution to keep him in power. He said this. He actually said those words. And the irony is all of these supposed conservative folks that have populated the Republican Party all stood around and with their with their thumb in their mouth going, well, yeah, okay, I guess so. It's It's bizarre. Okay, we'll call him Hitler for a while. Wait a minute, that's not working. Let's say he's worse than Hitler. Are, are you kidding me? What What are you thinking? At least she's a surrogate doing it, not the White House. But this is not going to persuade people. I don't know. How, I don't care how often they do it. It's not persuasive anymore. They've been saying it about every Republican going back to when we were fighting Hitler in World War II. More on that in a second. Mr. Biden has built his reelection campaign on this notion that democracy itself is at stake unless he wins. An AP poll last Friday showed that that fear is hitting home. 62% of adults say that American democracy may be at risk depending on who wins in November. Now, if you're somebody who really sincerely cares about democracy, if you're somebody who sees it as your divine right mandate to defend democracy, maybe you'll look at that poll and say, what can I do to make that a little better? If you're somebody who runs on unifying the country, as Biden did in 2020, maybe you look for a way there to unify. If you're going to do all this bragging about, oh, I want to bring together Republicans and Democrats, I can do it, maybe you try to tone it down a little. They love to tell a Republican candidate to tone it down. Where's Biden toning down his own rhetoric in his campaign? Well, I'll tell you where he is. He's looking at these national polls that show Mr. Trump leading and on track for a second term. By labeling him Hitler, Biden who's flailing with an all-time low of 35% approval in the Monmouth University poll last week, he's seeking to disqualify his opponent. He's taking, uh, this may sound as if I'm, I'm being melodramatic or I'm being insincere, but for anybody to take the Holocaust and use those victims as cheap political props, it's disgusting. None of us should do it, none of us at all. And by doing it, as an incumbent president, Biden is setting up this Hobson's choice, and he may come to regret it. If Trump wins, Biden can do two things. He can repudiate all the Hitler talk from his campaign, as to use one of his favorite terms, malarkey. That will be humiliating. It will be a real climb down. He would have to admit that he's full of that stuff that Bess Truman spent her whole life trying to get President Truman to call manure. But that would be the right thing to do because it would ensure a peaceful transition of power, the one he has railed against Mr. Trump for denying the nation in 2020. That malarkey option would be, say with me, friends, what democracy looks like. Choice B is far less attractive. That would be Biden refusing to surrender to the White House to a man he believes with all sincerity is Hitler. That would be undemocratic. Not to mention it will be a repeat of the very thing that he accuses Trump of doing by resisting the election results in 2020. Which choice does Biden take? This is why you don't do it. You let your underlings do it. You let people like Claire McCaskill with nothing better to do make these comparisons. And if you're a smart politician, when somebody does compare Trump to Hitler, you condemn them. You make yourself look reasonable. This is the kind of 
Oh, fun backslapping Uncle Joe persona that he rode this far with so little talent and ability from a little tiny nothing of a state, relative speaking, in population. This is what Biden rode to the, all the way to the White House, all the way to the vice presidency, then to the White House. COVID, of course, helped him. But he was supposedly the guy that was going to make peace with people. Don't buy it. This exposes it. This lays him bare. And it also lays bare that he's not too bright politically. Because I'll guarantee you smarter politicians out there are saying, what are you doing? The president of the United States, an incumbent, doesn't do this. Not because of any notions of norms. Not because it's bad for the country. (laughs) They don't care much about that. It's bad politics. That is a sin in Washington, D.C. That gets people's attention. And it doesn't matter that in the decades since World War II, everybody's least favorite asparagus sucker was giving his haranguing speeches in Berlin. Democrats, as well as Republicans, have been compared to Hitler. It doesn't matter that they've sapped what ought to be a shocking charge of its sting. It should be something that's immediately disqualifying, and yet it's become just another insult. And Biden is making that happen. He's elevating that to a new level. He's cheapening the unique singular evil of Adolf Hitler. Like Nazi, the name Hitler has become banal political rhetoric, as harmful to those swinging the brickbat, I would argue, as to those targeted. President Franklin Roosevelt, who was far more popular than Biden, pulled off the insult as an incumbent. At least he flirted with it. In 1940, which for those of you playing the home game, is five years before Hitler spent his honeymoon in a ditch on fire, FDR accused his Republican opponent, Governor Wilkie, of employing Hitler tactics. You know what his basis was for comparing Wendell Wilkie to Hitler? He said Wilkie repeated a lot of things, slogans, themes in his speeches, and that's what Hitler did. Hey, could that have been a gremlin? Hitler repeated things for emphasis. If you've ever repeated something for emphasis, you, my friends, dear listener, Go right now to your bathroom, take out your little shaving kit, and shave off your Hitler mustache because you, you, my friend, are Hitler. Did you know you were Hitler just by repeating something? I may well have repeated things right now in this show. If that guy is going to tell me that makes me Hitler, (laughs) it's so weak. It's so insulting. It's so lazy, really. But with that one line, FDR didn't frame the 1940 election as a choice between himself and a mini Hitler. He could have accepted Wilkie's victory, even though he said that. He would never have had to confront what Biden will, namely that he laid the prospect of a Fourth Reich before the American people, only to see them choose it. What do you do then? If Biden really believes that, there's no way he could turn over power to Donald Trump. He can't. Either he's full of malarkey or, I don't even like that word. I never liked it. Anyway, he's either full of it. Oh, my gosh, I repeat it. I repeat it for emphasis. Now I'm Hitler. Ah, gosh, I hate being Hitler. Maybe I'll paint my house this weekend because that's the only good thing you can say, I guess. He could, there was a painter. He could paint an entire apartment in one afternoon, two coats. I can't do watercolors. I can't paint people, which is very telling in Hitler's work. But apparently this makes you Hitler. It's, It's so cheap. But this is the prospect now that Biden's going to face. Are you full of it when you say he's Hitler? Or are you going to somehow deny the results of a legitimate election? Because that sounds an awful lot like what we saw in January of 2021. And when you hear the telling of it, the insurrection, the way that they speak about what happened, this was an insurrection. It was a unique threat on our democracy. It was 9-11 times 1,000. It was Pearl Harbor times a million. All of these, all this overblown rhetoric 
Is that what Biden's going to do? You hear so often people want to go back in time and kill Hitler. Do you think Biden takes any responsibility for the unbalanced minds out there that are really believing that this guy is a second coming of Hitler? What if somebody does something terrible? We've seen it happen before in our history. Is Biden going to take responsibility for that rhetoric? Is anyone even going to ask him to do so? Biden has a choice. He can limit his campaign to going after Trump on policies. And there's ample policy to go after him on. He can leave it to surrogates to beat up the Republican nominee over rhetoric that has words in common with Hitler. They can make those really weak, threadbare comparisons. And, well, he said blood, and Hitler said blood. And maybe they'll catch Trump eating at a vegan restaurant. They could say, he's a vegetarian. He's just like Hitler. It's still not good, but at least it's not an incumbent president doing it. An incumbent president does a service to democracy when he keeps his fingerprints off that Nazi brickbat. I'd like to add one more thing about Hitler and U.S. presidents, specifically FDR. If you can find it, Go watch a movie called Gabriel Over the White House. This is a movie from 1933, and it is begging FDR to become a dictator like Hitler. The president in the movie starts off as kind of an amiable Herbert Hoover slash Warren G. Harding figure. And Harding had great political skills, was a real backslapping, friendly guy. Of course, could never say no to his friends, ended up with his reputation mired in scandal. He certainly had an eye for the ladies. And then you had Herbert Hoover, who at the time was being demonized over the Great Depression. The president of the United States in this movie dissolves Congress. He acts as a dictator. He gives these speeches. He lines up leaders of organized crime at the Statue of Liberty and guns them down, executes them. This was all considered something to cheer. The president in this film goes and he threatens the countries of the world with a new super weapon that he's invented if they don't pay America back what they owe them for the previous world war. This movie, why am I bringing it up? It's obscure. I just said you probably can't even find Gabriel over the White House online streaming. Well, because FDR screened it again and again in the White House. He was watching this movie that's a fascist fantasy about a dictator taking over the democracy. And if you go and watch it, watch it with an eye towards the things, not that Donald Trump is saying, but that Joe Biden is saying about needing to save democracy by destroying it, about the president having been elected, and therefore what Congress does doesn't matter, ignoring those checks and balances. This is why conservatives are small government people. I know there's not a lot of those out there anymore. A lot of them like to say they're conservatives, but ah, I'd like the government to do a lot of work for me, for instance, with abortion. They'd like the government to come in and save unborn life, but they don't want to have to do the work of convincing people that it's a baby in the first place. They relied on the Supreme Court to do that. Instead of going out and doing the hard work, of convincing people, persuading people, talking to people who have different points of view. For me, I believe, as Thomas Jefferson said, that government that governs least governs best. I don't want the government to fix all my problems. I want them to do the bare minimum. The federal government certainly has only a role in protecting the country from foreign threats, the things that state governments can't do on their own. The Tenth Amendment clearly states that the power is not specifically given to the federal government are then the powers of the states or to the people themselves. I realize that the road we are on is really far away from that destination, but it's important to remember because that government, as Ronald Reagan said, that's big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take it all away. The power, that lust for raw power. FDR, remember, when he runs against Wilkie, he's seeking an unprecedented third term. Now, yeah, you can argue Ulysses S. Grant did flirt with the third term, tried to get that nomination, not consecutive. Certainly didn't run for a fourth term as FDR did. 
FDR made himself president for life. He liked that job. He was not going to get out of that chair. And I don't mean that as a pun. Eh, maybe it needs a little tiny, tiny. My fingers are about half an inch apart. And see that inch because we're Americans. We don't use the metric system. I don't even know what the metric system is. That's right. That's right. That's right. Half an inch. Half an inch. Little tiny, tiny pun about FDR and about, about the whole chair thing and the polio. Gabriel over the White House. I would really encourage you to go watch it. Watch how tempting it is. And then think about who is loving that movie. It wasn't the Republicans. It wasn't the people who were the America Firsters back then who just wanted to keep us out of Europe's entanglements, which sounds pretty good when you look at the toll of World War II, when you think about it. When you think about Winston Churchill begging FDR to make clear to Hitler what would happen instead of being mealy-mouthed. There's nothing wrong. And, and, it was out, and America First was the slogan that Warren G. Harding used. Since I said this movie bashes Warren G. Harding, let me play this soundbite of him explaining what America first meant to him. All it's the selfishness of nationalities, if you will. I think it's an inspiration to patriotic devotion. To safeguard America first. To stabilize America first. To prosper America first. To think of America first. To exalt America first. To live for and revere America first. Let the internationalist dream and the Bolshevist destroy. God pity him for whom no minstrel raptures dwell. In the spirit of the republic, we proclaim Americanism and acclaim America. Harding is a very interesting president, even though he gets overlooked. He's the only 20th century president never portrayed on film. A little bit of trivia that's rattling around in my head. But there's a reason he won that landslide. There's a reason the ladies in their first election to vote in 1920 overwhelmingly supported Harding. He was a charismatic figure. I spoke with David Petrucia. If you want to listen to our interview on his book, The Year of the Six Presidents, which was 1920, you have six men who would eventually be president who are running for the nominations that year, either as president or vice president. The only year that that happened. A great book, and also I really enjoyed that interview, which we did at the FDR Presidential Library in Hyde Park, so nothing against FDR in particular, but these presidents all make their mistakes, and I am certainly going to call them out on it when they do. Next up, a little more Trump talk, and the way he's gotten a foreign policy goal advanced without even needing to get reelected. This has to do with the NATO alliance. Now, the NATO alliance is made up of 31 nations, but... This is not the Rat Pack with Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, all these guys of relatively equal star power. America is like Gladys Knight, and all these other countries are the interchangeable pips. They may be good, they may be fine singers, but they're just there to provide backup vocals. They are not going to pack a stadium or a theater alone. Nobody shows up to see the pips. They show up to see Gladys Knight. America is Gladys Knight, resplendent in our sequin gown. The booming voice, the charisma, that is America. Well, President Trump makes clear that in a second term as Gladys Knight, he'll again push the pips, those NATO allies, to pay more for their own defense. Many imagine that as a threat to abandon the alliance, and the Senate acted to prevent that. They imagined up this threat, and now they're going to act to prevent it. <laughs> Thereby, they've unwittingly advanced Trump's foreign policy goal, even if he loses. In last week's bill funding the Department of Defense, which President Biden signed into law on Friday, 
senators included a safeguard for NATO. It aimed at allaying the fears in Washington and alliance capitals, but it also sent a message that Mr. Trump might call the bluff of Europeans who shout, Yankee, go home. Don't you love that? Ever notice what happens when the Yankees want to go home, what happens to the countries? Not to mention how many people decide they're going to follow the Yankees right back home. We're not allowed to say anybody go home. Oh, my gosh. Imagine if you tried such a thing. Even people who violate our laws to come here. Think about that next time you're waiting in line at an airport to get through. Ask yourself how come you have to stand there and wait as an American citizen to go through those lines. And you can't. You can't. You can't say that. You can't ask that. It's not even possible to ask. How dare you? How dare I even say that here on the Derek Hunter podcast? Trump has never made a clear threat to leave NATO, but he's done just enough by criticizing allies to plant this fear in people's minds. And I guess maybe they think it's smart politics to ramp up that fear as if the American people are out here thinking, oh, my gosh, NATO. We're not worried about Iran threatening to nuke us or North Korea threatening to nuke us or sky high inflation. We're worried about NATO, this little club of a bunch of countries, many of which don't do anything but sap our resources. And it's just the simple truth. Few of them meet the 2% of GDP spending on defense that they agreed to in the treaty. And so Trump, rightly in my opinion, questioned the value of this alliance if these countries don't share the cost of Western Europe's defense. I've written about this a bunch of times in the New York Sun. In fact, my very first column was about Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Do we really gain a benefit? Those countries are very strong independently, but the minute that they join NATO, guess what? Now they're protected by rich Uncle Skelton and his nuclear umbrella. They're protected by NATO. They don't have to spend nearly as much in defense. I think they will, because Finland, at least, has memories of the Winter War and World War II. And by the way, who helped Finland in World War II? Hmm, was that guy again, the guy with the asparagus? Yeah, it was the guy who stole Charlie Chaplin's mustache. But we're not going to bring that up. That's not acceptable to bring up. In 2014, only three of NATO's 30 non-American members met that 2% threshold of spending. By 2020, after four years of Trump's presidency, the number had more than tripled to 10. We expect this trend to continue, NATO's Secretary General Jen Stolberg told reporters at Stuttgart in October of 2020. Far from weakening the alliance as critics feared then and fear now and warn against now, what had Trump done? He'd strengthened the alliance. He'd achieved what was a long-standing policy goal of Washington leaders in both parties. I remember back as far as 1996 and Bob Dole, who was a Republican nominee that year, Senator Bob Dole, was saying, hey, we pick up the check every single time. Once in a while, if you go out, even if these countries are our friends and allies, don't you want your friends once in a while you pick up a check? No, 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 they won't pick up a check. And in soft-spoken diplomatic circles, it's not even impossible to suggest they pick up the check. Even though they got the end they wanted, they don't like Trump's means. They don't like the methods he employed to get these countries to pay more. And for my part, especially when, if you go to a European country and talk to a certain kind of European person, what do they do? Insult America for not spending enough on social programs. Well, we have this thing called defending the world that we pay for. So maybe that's why we don't have the money to lavish on social spending nets. Maybe that's why even though it won't work anyway, socialized medicine, let's say for the sake of argument, we don't have the money to spend to pay everyone's bills. We could, we could just pay doctors if we didn't use that money, but they won't pay. And that's part of this America first ideal. It reminds me of what Peggy Noonan wrote in one of my all-time favorite books, which was What I Saw at the Revolution. Peggy said that when she went to 
the first meeting with the Russians. She said, I looked around the room and all the Russians were leaning backwards and all the Reagan people were leaning forward. And she said, I could tell all the Russians were thinking, these are not the Carter people. <laughs> these are not the people anymore who are apologetic for America, who are insecure about America. They are all forceful and in, in, in our faces. And guess what happened? Oh, same thing. Reagan's going to bring on Armageddon. He's a cowboy. He's going to destroy the earth. He's going to have nuclear war. He's itching to push the button. Well, little known facts about President Reagan is that he was probably the most anti-nuclear war president. AIDS feared he wouldn't even order a nuclear attack if he had to, if we were being attacked. He put off his nuclear briefing to use the nuclear football for a full year as president when he was inaugurated. Imagine that. This was supposedly a cowboy, right? He couldn't wait to get his hands on those nuclear codes. He couldn't wait to nuke the Ruskies. That's what they tell you. That's the conventional wisdom, which is almost always wrong. In reality, he feared he would have to do that. He watched that movie the day after. I was in high school when the day after came out in the mid-'80s, and uh, it was terrifying. It was all Reagan was going to do this thing. Reagan was shocked by that movie. He was so frustrated that the Soviet leaders kept dying because he wanted a partner in peace. He so strongly wanted somebody who he could say, I don't want this to happen. I don't want this nuclear sword of Damocles hanging over humanity itself. Let's find a way forward in our common humanity. It's the same thing that is happening right now. It's inventing fears. He's uncouth. Reagan was not one of them. He went to Eureka College? Come on, that's not even a safety school of anybody who's in the Washington establishment. They didn't want Reagan in there. Of course, it doesn't help Donald Trump much that he went to an Ivy League school either. They're just not in the club. And because Trump isn't in the club... The Democrat of Virginia, Senator Kane, and Republican of Florida, Senator Rubio, they co-sponsored this provision on NATO and requires an act of Congress or Senate approval to leave the alliance or they'll deny funds to bring the troops home. Now, this is probably a bill right after President Biden's own heart, because did you know, and we wrote about this in the New York Sun, I've not seen it anywhere else, he, as a senator, Biden, denied funds not just to bring troops home from Vietnam, but Americans home from Vietnam to strand them there. If only people knew this kind of history, if only people had cared more about his record, and honestly, if only Trump had been better at this kind of politics then, or anybody had been better at it, really, and the Republican establishment reminded people of these kind of blots on his record, maybe we could have avoided Biden repeating his greatest hits over in Afghanistan, or a lot of these other things that he has done, and this kind of rhetoric about Hitler that I was speaking about a little while ago. President Reagan had Joe Biden's number. He called him a smooth demagogue. And boy, did he nail it. In any case, this language in that bill about NATO is more posturing than practical. There is not a Congress I can imagine, Joe Biden's notwithstanding, who would abandon American soldiers, sailors, and airmen in the crossfire of a Russian invasion. They would have to get them out. And the limitation would also set up a legal clash since Article 2 of the Constitution states that the president alone shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy. Congress has no say in who we put over there and what those troops do. Another impractical option would be for Congress to attempt to force a president to prosecute a war he does not want. The Warhawks in Congress considered doing that with President William McKinley when he held out for a diplomatic solution with Spain in 1898. I often say that people lump all the vices on McKinley and all the virtues on TR, but TR was one of those war hawks. He famously said that William McKinley had all the backbone of a chocolate eclair, which is just some 
fantastic imagery right there. They wanted war, 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 war right now. And McKinley very strongly resisted it. They pushed him so much to declare war. Can you imagine anybody's going to push a President Trump like that? And in any case, Article 5 of the NATO Treaty itself offers a loophole. You'll often hear that summarized as an attack on one is an attack on all. And it sounds so high-minded. But Article 5 gives members wide flexibility in how they react to that attack on all. It states that in the event of a strike on a member, each treaty signatory agrees to take, quote, such action as it deems necessary, including, note, but not requiring, the use of armed force. That is a real big loophole. You could drive a M1 Abrams tank through that. Members exercised this flexibility after 9-11. That was the only time Article 5 was ever invoked. The UK, of course, strapped up with us. God bless them, as they always have in the 20th century. And they provided a large military force in Afghanistan. They threw everything they had into it. Poland was very committed to that war. But other nations did far less. Greece provided only support ships. Turkey contributed only by allowing use of their airspace. How nice of them. Uh, their role did later expand, but that's a huge country in NATO, right? Didn't feel the need to send any troops. So a U.S. president could do the same thing. Somebody invades a member state. The U.S. doesn't have to go to their aid with military force. I can't imagine we wouldn't because it's just how we are and we don't want to see anybody attacked and we don't want to see any of our allies being invaded. But this is certainly something that renders ridiculous this attempt in the recent defense bill. And by the way, in the 1960s, France downsized its role in NATO, too. First, the French president, Charles de Gaulle, yanked his naval fleets from NATO command. Later, he announced that he intended to abrogate the treaty altogether, and he demanded that all American troops leave France. President Lyndon Johnson was having none of this. He was mindful of the GIs who had died for liberty in France during the World Wars, and when de Gaulle said, all Americans leave France, LBJ ordered that de Gaulle be asked if the expulsion included, quote, the dead Americans in military cemeteries as well. LBJ was somebody bipolar, manic depressive, had a lot of problems, obviously has all that blood from Vietnam in his hands. But he was pretty strong on this. And in fact, his secretary of state tried to do the very same thing we see now. He didn't want to ask the question of de Gaulle, even though he'd been ordered to. And LBJ heard him on the phone and started yelling at him, ask him about the cemeteries. <laughs> well, it, it certainly humiliated de Gaulle, which he didn't particularly like, but that was in private. In public, his brinksmanship had arisen from this feeling that was very similar to the one that Trump has, that many Americans have, that his nation was being taken advantage of by other members. France remained in NATO, but it had a reduced role, and you may not know they didn't fully rejoin NATO as a partner until 2009. I never recall hearing anybody criticize. Obviously, Biden was in the Senate then. He was vice president in that year, in 2009. I don't recall any criticism ever of France for, for leaving NATO and for not wanting to participate in the joint command structure, not being a full partner in NATO. Trump, once again, is playing people with this. And I was reminded of a quote from The Art of the Deal where he described his style of deal-making in terms that mirrored de Gaulle's. He said, I aim very high, and then I just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing to get what I'm after. Well, Trump pushed NATO members to pay more, and that happened in his first term. In a second, you can expect him to resume that pressure and to do so with an assist from these Senate opponents who just telegraphed that it's wise for allies to shore up their own defenses to ensure that the Yankees don't come home, to ensure that we stay over there. 
And you know what? It only makes the whole alliance stronger. Well, that's it for this episode of the Derek Hunter Podcast. Thank you so much for spending it with me today. I really do appreciate you lending me your ear. I will be back tomorrow. Derek will be back on January 2nd with his big, super important announcement. And you will be so happy to hear it if you're fans of his show. And more importantly, if you're just fans of good radio and good listening, you'll be glad to hear that Derek's going to get himself back out there on the airways. I'm so looking forward to it myself. I wish you all the best today with your Wednesday. Two days left of this weird week between Christmas and New Year's, and then it's all over. But thanks again for spending it with me. Alvida Zane, and I will see you all right back here tomorrow. I'm Lur, ruler of the planet Omicron Pussy I hate. May I crash on your couch?